There's a profound lesson here, although not a new lesson, it's a lesson as old as history about self-regulation that just generally that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a strategy to fade the heat on actual regulation. You know, the more we believe that those in need of regulation will regulate themselves, the less inclined we will be to regulate them. It's just bullshit. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Goldie, on this podcast, we're going to celebrate a great date, August 19th, 2019. What happened on that day? Oh, it's uh, one of the great moments of uh, in the history of corporate governance, Nick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was the day that the Business Roundtable issued a press release saying that they, they redefined the purpose of the corporation to promote, quote, an economy that serves all Americans. And you know what, Nick? It was just in time because that was August of 2019. Six months later, we were plunged into the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic turmoil that created. And of course, those corporations, these, these leading corporations, the largest employers in the United States were all there to take care of their employees, right? Yeah, they must have been so excited for the opportunity to live up to this commitment that they made. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, for example, in the press release, they lead off with a quote from uh, Jamie Dimon, the chairman and CEO of, uh, of JP Morgan Chase, yeah. and uh, also the chairman of the business Roundtable. He said, the American dream is alive, but fraying. Major corporations are investing in their workers and communities because they know it is the only way to be successful over the long term. And, you know, he proved to be uh, right in terms of his intent, as long as you count workers as CEOs and communities as shareholders. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, today we get to talk to Katie Bach, uh, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, who has done a deep dive and analysis on what actually happened, what, what those companies actually did uh, for workers within the context of this bold new announcement around uh, changing the purpose of the corporation. Uh, so she, she has a new report out that details what happened. And I don't want to spoil the interview. Uh, right. No, but, no, no, no spoilers here. <laughs> but what she found, I know, will shock our listeners they may not have completely lived up to that commitment. <laughs> so let's talk to Katie. I am Katie Bach. So I wear two hats at the moment. I am the chief business officer of a company called Ann Pizza. We're based in DC. We've got about 60 locations. It's a fast, casual pizza chain that is known for its commitment to providing really good frontline jobs. My other hat, is I am a uh, non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where I write about low-wage work and, and job quality. 
So Katie, uh, there's a, a little bit of a showdown shaping up between stakeholder capitalism and shareholder cap capitalism. And we were wondering if you could sort of set the scene for us and describe for our listeners the differences and the development in that, in that rivalry. I think it's helpful to go back a few decades. So in the immediate post-war years, our leading corporations had some sense that they had a responsibility to their communities, to society, to their workers. In other words, to stakeholders who were not shareholders. In those days, you had a much greater balance between worker power and corporate power, which contributed to this sense that corporations had. You can really see this in the numbers, right? So you had um, about 30% of workers in unions. And in those post-war years, you have wages moving in tandem with both productivity and company share price. So there's this sense that the pie is being distributed more equitably. Now, I want to be super clear. It was not inclusive for everyone, right? I mean, I am a woman. These would not have been amazing days for me. If you were non-white, this was not a great time. But for at least white male workers, it was just a little bit of a different contract. And so sometimes around 1980, this really breaks down. And you see this massive divergence between labor productivity and company productivity and, and plus company share prices on the one hand and wages on the other. And not coincidentally, this kind of late 70s, early 80s breakdown uh, comes pretty soon after an economist, Milton Friedman, writes this really famous New York Times article. And in this article, he makes the case that the only purpose of a corporation is to increase profit. And that is really the definition of shareholder capitalism. So this, this kind of academic and intellectual embracing of the idea that a corporation exists really only to serve its shareholders then really manifests, as I said, in, in kind of this breakdown between the old relationship between company success and I, my personal focus is worker success, but also, you know, local community success, all of it. And so in the, let's call it about 40 years since that breakdown, you see a very significant increase in inequality. Now to get to the kind of stakeholder capitalism point. So, so you know, we've got you've got uh, 2008, the Great Recession. And at this point, shareholder capitalism has been ascendant and unquestionably dominant for about 30 years. Great Recession hits and suddenly some of this inequality that has been accumulating over the last 30 years is exposed. Suddenly millennials realize like, I will never be able to afford a house. You know, homeowners across the US lose their homes and they can't afford another one. There is this collective realization that the system is perhaps a lot more fragile and a lot less just than we thought. And so around that time, you start to get some forces fighting for a different conception of the responsibilities of a corporation. And it's around this time that major corporations start coming under increased, what I call social good pressure. So you have ESG investors who focus on environment, sustainability, and governance. Uh, you've got social media enabled non-union labor activism, like the fight for 15. You've got, you know, Occupy Wall Street. Um, and you have increasing American support for a $15 minimum wage. And I mean, I think to me, the kind of 
sign that this, this, this challenger view of what the responsibility of a corporation is became, if not rhetorically dominant, then at least prevalent. So I went to business school in 2010 at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And on my first day, we heard a talk about stakeholder capitalism. So by 2010, rhetorically, you are hearing a lot about stakeholder capitalism. You aren't seeing much action. So let me, let me pause there. I, I can go into the more recent activity, but there's my overview. Why don't we jump to the subject of your upcoming report, which is to report on this uh, big commitment by many of the nation's biggest companies to, to take their stakeholders and workers more seriously. You know, as I said, you've got this kind of post-Great Recession shift where more and more people are talking about, well, huh, like maybe corporations shouldn't just look out for their shareholders who are becoming kind of obscenely rich. So in August 2019, 181 members of the Business Roundtable, so the Business Roundtable is a group of the country's largest, most powerful, I mean, companies, really, their, their CEOs, release a new statement on the purpose of the corporation. They've been releasing these statements since 78, and historically, every one of those statements just reaffirmed shareholder capitalism. The purpose of a corporation is to drive profit for shareholders. In this August 2019 statement, they, they took a very different tact. And the first sentence was, Americans deserve an economy that allows each person to succeed through hard work and creativity and to live a life of meaning and dignity. And then they go through and they talk about what that means um, and, and the ways in which they will look out for not just their shareholders, but other stakeholders. And as someone who focuses on workers, the part that most interested me was their commitment to, quote, investing in our employees. This starts with compensating them fairly and providing important benefits. What it did not say, and this is incredibly important, and this is a major theme of, of our report, is that all stakeholders are equally important. It just committed to give all of these stakeholders some amount of consideration. So that was August 2019. Six months later, the pandemic hits. And this is, in some ways, just a perfect test case for this commitment that they made. Also, what it doesn't do is it, it didn't define what they meant by by treating workers more fairly, what fairly meant. Yeah, and I would actually argue that uh, that is not a bug so much as a feature. Um, it was intentionally vague. Right, because if this is a meritocracy and the market efficiently pays you exactly what you're worth, then if you're, you're not making a livable wage, that's because you don't deserve a livable wage. Exactly, so that's fair. That's fair, right. So, so, so what happened, Katie? <laughs> um, exactly yeah. what you would I'm expect in suspense. to happen. I just right, want. I, I just. I, Edge I'm of your so seat. curious about whether <laughs> these folks lived up to their commitment. I mean, obviously not. What is mind blowing, though, is how many people thought that they would. You know, for this <laughs> right. report, I went back and I looked at some of the press around this business roundtable announcement, and it was just. I mean, it was like this wide-eyed, credulous capitalism is being saved by the capitalists moment. Yeah. 
um, which was so patently absurd. Right. And, and, and yet somehow we fell for it. So what we did in our report is, and, and it's, it is a challenging commitment to, to assess because they didn't commit to anything specific. So right. what we did is we looked at 22 of the country's largest, most influential employers of traditionally low-wage workers. And I can go through the list, but it's kind of all the ones you would expect, you know, Amazon, Best Buy, Costco, CVS, Walmart, Target, and so on. And we asked three questions. We said, one, during this pandemic period, did they pay their workers fairly? Two, who benefited from the gains during the pandemic? And three, who bore the losses? And, you know, the TLDR, no, for the most part, workers are not paid fairly. Two, shareholders and executives benefited from gains, not workers. And three, workers disproportionately bore the losses. And, and you, you say those words, but it's really worth elaborating on by how much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. yeah. The, the numbers yeah. in your report are yeah. startling. Yeah. They, so why don't you take us through this? I will tell you, I am as cynical as they come. And I had multiple jaw drop moments while, while writing yeah. this report. So let's start with fair pay. Yeah. Um, we have heard a lot, especially in the past, let's call it six to eight months, about how this is a worker market, wages are going up and so forth. By the end of the pandemic, at most seven of these 22 companies, we can only say five for sure, and I'll get to why, at most seven of these 22 companies paid even one half of their workers a living wage. And it's really important to understand what a living wage is. A living wage is the wage that allows you to just survive. It covers rent, childcare, transport, healthcare, food. It leaves nothing for retirement saving, for an occasional meal out, for any form of luxury. I mean, this is the bare minimum. So these are like the 22, some of the 22 like most iconic, you know, these are some of the most profitable, successful companies the world has ever seen. And not even a third of them pay even half of their workers a living wage. If you want to look at wage increases, there were only 11 companies that both raised wages and uh, told us what the numbers were. So I think it's fair to assume those are the 11 companies that did the most. The real pandemic wage increase, and we we looked at uh, January 2020 to uh, October 2021, was about 5%. If you pull that through to today with inflation, it's, it's closer to 2%. So from our perspective, there really wasn't any, like there was no interpretation of the word fair that described this group of 22 companies in terms of their worker pay. But in the meantime, the shareholders and CEOs did pretty well during that period, didn't they? (laughs) So then we looked at gains and gains are tricky, right? Because for shareholders and CEOs, we're talking about wealth gains. There is no such thing as wealth gains for the workers of these companies because they are paid so little. As I said, most of them aren't even paid enough to get by, let alone accumulate wealth. So what we did was the the closest proxy we could find is we compared wealth gains for shareholders to all additional investment in workers. 
So that was any wage increase, that was any hazard pay or what we called COVID pay during the pandemic. It was any profit share or bonus scheme, like every way in which these companies shared success with workers. And before I get into the numbers, one really important thing to remember is that for a lot of these companies, 2020 was the best year on record. So we, we think of the pandemic as a very difficult time for businesses. And for many, it was. But you know, for companies like Amazon, Target, Best Buy, Home Depot, Lowe's, these were phenomenal times. So we looked at share price increases. And what's kind of amazing is between January 2020 and October 2021, so our, the period we looked at, the average share price increase for these companies was 50%. If you compare that to the S&P for the, the prior 22 months, the S&P for the prior, S&P 500 for the prior 22 months was like 20%. So this is just a boom time. Yeah. And you're not, you're not cherry picking because you picked January of uh, 2020 exactly. before the market crashed in March. That's correct. We intentionally picked January. I will also say 12 of the companies we looked at were clear winners. 10 were not. So we also included companies like Marriott, Hilton, Disney, Gap, Macy's, Walgreens, companies that did have a really rough pandemic. So that 50% number is just astounding. And, you know, it, it, it brings us back to those images we all saw in the early days of the pandemic of those miles long lines at food banks, while all of us who were looking at our investments were, you know, just doing extraordinarily well. So that's the share price. Where, where it gets kind of really incredible is when you look at the gains. So these 22 companies over that period generated $1.5 trillion in wealth for shareholders. That is almost an unthinkable number. I, I will say that is about a third of the size of the entire United States budget. Of that, if we want to just look at how much of that went to like really rich Americans, it was about $800 billion. So $800 billion from just these 22 companies went to the richest 6 million American families. Kind of by coincidence, 6 million richest families, we can compare to the 7 million American workers of these companies. So these 7 million workers got 27 billion in extra pay. So it is 800 billion for the top 5% of American families versus 27 billion for these 7 million workers who are literally risking their lives every day to keep our economy running. And one way that I think it's helpful to look at these numbers is if you do it on like a, a per family basis, that's a $140,000 gain for really, really rich Americans from doing nothing, just, just from owning stock in these companies. For an individual worker family, it's about a dollar an hour extra over that period. A lot of people, of course, bought that when this, you know, when this press release was sent out, that this would have a meaningful impact on corporate behavior. Not me. (laughs) 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 So, you know, I, I guess, you know, there's, there's a profound lesson here, although not a new lesson, it's a lesson as old as history about self-regulation that just generally that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a strategy to fade the heat on actual regulation and actual standards. 
Correct. And, you know, I think that this is just another great example of how that doesn't work. Before you got on the show this morning, we were arguing about whether it was a step forward or a step backwards that they uh, that, that, that they did send out this press release. What, what's your view? If you'd asked me nine months ago, I would have said a step back because, you know, the more we believe that those in need of regulation will regulate themselves, the less inclined we will be to regulate them. Yeah. Having seen the amount of activity around worker power over these past nine months, I believe that, uh, the actors who we need to be extremely skeptical are extremely skeptical. And given that, I think that the good aspect of this is it says that the companies are feeling a little bit of heat. So I now see this as a, let's call it a neutral thing. Whereas before I would have seen it as unquestionably negative. Interesting. Okay. I saw it as a baby step forward because at least you had these folks acknowledging there was a problem, right? That is something. Were you hoping for a little cognitive dissonance to kick in that if they say these things, they're more likely over the long run, however long that is, to act on it a little bit? No, no, no. I had no hope. I had absolutely no confidence that anybody <laughs> was going to do anything. But what it does do is open up the, the sort of national conversation around how mm-hmm. how unfair this is. They've gone on record now saying, yeah, we kind of screwed everybody. So we get to use that forever. But, you know, the, the idea that, that there was something that was uh, something of substance was going to come from this was just ridiculous. It was never yeah. going to happen. I'm curious, Katie, the, the progress you see in the last eight months, how much of that do you think comes from increasing social pressure? And how much do you think it comes from just a really tight labor market? Hard to say. Um, I think, let me put it this way. I think a really tight labor market was perhaps a necessary condition and not a sufficient condition. Um, I think absent the really tight labor market, we would not be seeing this level of pressure. Now that we are, I mean, it does seem a little contagious, right? I was looking at the numbers of of Starbucks that have filed and said, disclaimer, I was a corporate strategy director at Starbucks a few years ago. And I'm looking at the number of Starbucks that have filed to unionize and it is moving quickly. They, They are not able to get a hold on that. As a, as a corporation. So I think the tight labor market enabled it. That's great. So are there any particularly juicy stories from your research that are worth sharing? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I never know if what infuriates me is going to infuriate other people. There are, you know, there are any number of like pretty heartbreaking worker stories, you know, where like Disney starts starts funneling money to shareholders right as they decide to like increase their number of layoffs. But there are two things that I found just absolutely enraging. One was when we looked at the uh, stock buyback numbers. So like when I was in business school, I was taught that a company buys back stock if it has literally no other productive use for that money, right? It's like we are sitting on this excess cash and we have nothing to do but funnel it back to shareholders. So if you look at some of these stock buyback numbers, so again, this is just excess cash that they're handing to shareholders on a per worker basis. I mean, take Lowe's. Lowe's 2020 median wage was $24,000. So it is below a living wage. In the period we looked at, they spent, actually it was in a, it was in a, uh, a four quarter period. They spent $36,000 
per worker on stock buybacks. So they could have more than doubled their median worker wage. Target, Target spent $12,000 per worker on stock buybacks. Against, I mean, it's, it is shocking. So those numbers, especially targets, just because that's a really big number, um, blew me away. The yeah. stories that I found really infuriating were how they protected CEO compensation. So basically the way CEO incentives are supposed to work is when the company performs badly, the CEO does not get paid as much, right? That is, that is why you know, anywhere from 50 to 90% of CEO compensation is specifically tied to company financial performance. Of the 10 companies who had a rough 2020 for one reason or another, four of them just blatantly changed the rules to protect CEO compensation. So take Hilton, they had the worst year on record. They had a net loss of $715 million. They just changed their performance parameters, which gave their CEO an additional $13.7 million in compensation. Um, while nearly 50,000 of their workers were furloughed. Yeah, that's so weird that that a, a board filled with CEOs would <laughs> protect the compensation of a CEO. My favorite chart in our report is one that we built that shows the board interactions between the companies and how board members are just either former, present, or future colleagues of the people they are supposed to be governing. Imagine two lists of companies, and then just spaghetti between them. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty incestuous crowd. It is. Yeah. And they don't pick you for the board if you're going to mess with their compensation. As it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, you know, I, had cut, I had cut you off. You're going to talk about Chipotle. Yeah. So Ch Chipotle, I just, this was a little egregious just because it's such a small company. So what Chipotle did, which it was sort of symbolically interesting to be fair, the executive team did perform very well. At the same time, 2020 was, you know, for many reasons, a tough year for the company and profits were down from the prior year. So when it came time to do exec comp, the company literally erased the worst pandemic quarter from the calculation. Like they just pretended it never happened. And that secured their CEO an additional $34 million. And, and what's so kind of amazing about that to me is the symbolism, right? They just erased this quarter. It never happened. Meanwhile, worker earnings were actually down, even with the hazard pay, because workers were getting so few hours. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I love about your analysis that we have not done ourselves is converting stock buyback numbers to dollars per worker. Mm -hmm. that, that's, a very, um, that's a very potent way to an analyze those numbers. It's a great way to contextualize uh, that, uh, particularly for low-wage um, employers. Yeah. It's a great way of illustrating it. Yeah, yeah. $12,000 per worker at Target. Yeah, and, yeah. and by the way, uh, in the past few weeks, I've twice walked into a Target and walked out because the lines at the cash registers were mm -hmm. too long because mm -hmm. they, they, they were mostly empty because they can't hire enough employees. Yeah. Yep. But they certainly have enough money for stock buybacks. Yeah. Yep. That can't yeah. be good for business. Yeah, exactly. So we always, we love to ask the benevolent dictators oh. question. What, what should we do? What's how your much, prescription for change? How much time do you have? Yeah. Um, 
So a few things, right? There is, I would separate this into two buckets. One is directly forcing corporations to behave in ways that we know are good for society on a net basis. The second is enabling other actors to exert power, to be, to be power counterweights in this system in which corporations have accumulated almost all of the power. So on the first, I mean, the most obvious is just raise the minimum wage. It should be, I mean, to me, 15 is sort of the minimum standard. As inflation increases, it should potentially be higher. Um, we also need more regulation around scheduling. I would argue that we need some form of regulation around take-home pay and percentage of part-time and full-time workers. We need regulation around sick pay and so on and so forth. So that's the like, make corporations do the right thing. And by the way, it doesn't have to be bad for business. Look at Costco. They have a $25 average wage and they are wildly successful. The other side is how do we enable other actors to exert power? And this involves reforming labor law, first and foremost. Uh, I would argue it involves things like putting workers on boards, or I should say worker representative on boards. And then one thing I don't, I don't hear enough about, but I, I, I think is so critical, is changing disclosure requirements. So I mentioned earlier that we think up to seven of these companies pay half their workers a, a living wage. The reason we don't know is that companies don't have to tell us essentially anything about how they treat their workers. The minute you change that, consumers can hold companies to account. And the truth is, even if consumers don't take that step, companies will believe that they will. So okay. that's my sort of benevolent dictator world. So, so that would just be like in the quarterly report, along with all the other required data that they have to disclose, they would have to have some pay transparency. What I would argue for is a distribution of annualized take-home pay. So what percentage of your workers make under 5,000 a year? 5 to 10, 10 to 15. I have worked with a number of C-suite dreams of, of Fortune 100 companies and presented this information, and the executives are shocked. They have no idea how bad it is, which is its own problem. But this type of disclosure would be incredibly powerful. Couldn't you do that through an SEC reg? It should be through an SEC reg. That's right. Oh, uh, Nick, I think this is something. Yeah. See, I never thought about this, but that's something that's something that's doable. Doesn't even require Congress. Right? Exactly. Th that's why this is the one I fight for so much. Yeah, no Senator Manchin or Cinema to get in the way. Nope. Just an SEC requirement. And I will tell you, companies will say this is burdensome, blah, blah, blah. I have done this huh. analysis at multiple companies. No. It took me like half a day, which means that, you know, they can get some analysts to do it. Yeah. Oh, Sarbanes-Oxley is, Sarbanes is, is crushing. Uh, this, not. Quite. Exactly. Yeah, well, they already hire... You know, yeah. like one of three uh, yeah. uh, payroll companies exactly. to send out all their checks. They yeah. have all the data. Yeah, no, exactly. this is not a tough lift. No, yeah. it's really not. That's great. That's, and and uh, by the way, it was it was simply a change of an SEC regulation that enabled stock buybacks. You could change yeah. that back too. Ex so I am so intrigued by that. Or put a threshold. You can yeah. do a stock buyback only once X percent of your workers make a living wage. Right. And one final question, Katie, why do you do this work? Because I believe that everyone deserves jobs with dignity and meaning. We spend a lot of our time at work and there are those of us like me who through really no reason other than luck 
have ended up in these incredibly fulfilling careers that are both highly lucrative and intellectually stimulating, there are tens of millions of Americans who are underpaid, humiliated, disrespected every single day. And it just breaks my heart. As it should. Yep. Yep. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. Wow. What a great report. Thank you. Uh, it's yeah. It's I, I, wonderful and depressing all at the exactly. same time. <laughs> exactly. And, and, a, and a great resource. Fantastic. Thank you so much. August 19th, 2019, a day that will live in bullshit. What? <laughs> what will it live in? Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big, big steaming pile. Uh, <laughs> Jamie Dimon has become, he's become like a caricature of himself. Uh, like, what was he ever not? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I've never met him. I, yeah. I did once get pepper sprayed outside a hotel he was at. Uh, believe it or not, believe <laughs> it or not, I once interviewed Jamie Dimon for a job. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He, he, he had just gotten chucked out of, I can't remember, some Wall Street company. He was unemployed, and we were looking for a CEO for uh, one of my companies, Aquantiv. I was chairman. And uh, somehow he got uh, on the list of possible CEOs. We had a nice chat, uh, but concluded that this was not a great fit. Um, obviously, we did very well, but so did he. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's just it's so funny. But um, you look, Goldie, the moral of the story here is that the notion of self-regulation is it's just bullshit. Like, right. like that commitment by the Business Roundtable was nothing more than a press release it was a way to fade the heat on actual regulation. And, you know, in fairness, everybody needs to be held to a high standard by other people. Children need to be held to a high standard, businesses, everybody. And, it, you know, it's not, frankly, it's not on them in many ways to do the right thing, irrespective of those standards, but it is on society to, to hold, hold folks to a high standard. And, the higher the standard, the better off the society will be. That's just all there is to it. Right. Well, one of one of the rules of thumb we talk about in terms of how how markets work, it's that markets are self-organizing, but not self-regulating. Correct. And and that's why you can't rely on the business roundtable to get together and say, oh man, we, we need to do a better job. Yeah. And uh, suddenly institute a new era of stakeholder capitalism. It, it's not going to happen on its own. And that's why I think, you know, it was really interesting listening to Katie with the uh, her recommendations on how to address it. Nick, uh, one of them was uh, raise the minimum wage. Um, you've been pushing for a $15 minimum wage since uh, 2012. And I think I should say you no longer push for that, Nick. What are you pushing for these days? A progressive minimum wage where the largest corporations pay 25, medium-sized businesses with thousands of employees pay 20, and small businesses pay 15. Yeah, and then we index, we index that to something realistic, probably not inflation, probably something more like uh, productivity. productivity growth, yeah. Yeah. which is uh, how we used to informally index the minimum wage. Correct. Um, she talks for, and we've talked about this a lot, about the imbalance of power in the economy, the extraordinary imbalance of power. Yeah. Uh, she talks about 
uh, strengthening the uh, the right of uh, workers to uh, collectively bargain, you know, to create unions. And you're seeing that now yeah. uh, right here in Seattle. We have our first uh, Starbucks union at a Starbucks location in the back here in the hometown of Seattle. And I, and I want to bring up another thing that's interesting, by the way. She mentioned that these things are not bad for business, and she brought up another hometown company, uh, yeah. which is kind of the, the opposite of Starbucks in their approach, uh, which is Costco, Yeah, which and, has and, al- always and, had a business model in which it, it paid its workers more and has been very profitable doing that. That's right. And she said she, she wasn't sure that they were better guys, but I, I know those guys, and I can tell you uh, with authority that they are better guys. <laughs> Jeff Brotman and Jim Senegal. Uh, Jeff sadly passed a few years ago, but were two of the most thoughtful, uh, ethical business people in America. Uh, they just they just were unbelievably civically minded and uh, just just incredibly fine people. So it's not I, I don't think it's an accident that Costco ended up as an incredibly, by the way, a great place to shop, but also a great place to work. And I want to bring up something else, which is really important, because I know, you know me, I'm always thinking what the other side is going to say. I, I, you know, I'm looking at the propaganda side of this and how are people going to push back? One of the things going to say is this isn't fair. It's an outlier. Uh, This report covers the period of the Great Recession, this incredibly disruptive, ahistorical moment in history. How can you look at these companies and their uh, ability to live up to this pledge when it happened in this weird, weird moment. And my pushback to that is, no, 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 you got it backwards. The pandemic economy, it was an opportunity to live up to this in a way that the normal economy wouldn't have allowed them. Correct. This was a unique opportunity to change your business practices. Right. And no one would have pushed back. In that moment. Right. Anyway, it was a, a great report, but not a surprising report. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I, I I don't think if you were looking for the twist and it turns out they did it. Yeah. And you know, we all know from reality <laughs> that uh, things have not gotten better, that the our economy has grown even less equal. Yeah. <laughs> over the past two years than it was before. And that was a hard thing to do, um, you know, based on what the starting point was. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.